Tonight, tonight, we're continuing the book of Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah divides into four parts. This should be behind me. Isaiah 1 through 12 are prophecies concerning Judah. Remember, the focus right off the bat is on Jerusalem, the city of of Jerusalem, the area of Judea, and just God saying, you need to hear me, my people. Then, chapters 13 through 35, God kind of moves the scope back a little bit, and he begins to prophesy to the nations around Jerusalem, speaking to Moab and Ammon, and Assyria and Babylon and Egypt and all of these other nations around the city of Jerusalem. Then, then we began to see the third part, practical statesmanship, where Isaiah and Hezekiah, the king of Judah, during the time that was written, they go to battle on their knees against the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians, the biggest, baddest empire on the planet at that time, and they defeat them. Jerusalem, with very little army, very little military. How do they defeat them? They won the battle on their knees, by the way. Prayer does do amazing things. Let us never forget that. And Hezekiah and Isaiah saw that firsthand. And then, last week, we began the final section of the book of Isaiah, and that is prophecies concerning the future. The first the first eight or nine chapters there, 40 through 48, focus on the greatness of God. Isaiah is just saying, man, our Lord is so good. And we looked at that section last week. If you missed it, I, I just, I want to encourage you to go back. I think it was an important message last Wednesday night that God is a creator. So let him drive. <laughs> he, he knows how to create the world. He knows how to lead your life. Let him drive. God's the, the one who speaks the future before it happens. So he doesn't need your counsel And he's the restorer, so we don't need to turn to idols when we've fallen. We need to turn to him. Then the middle section we'll look at tonight focuses on the graciousness of God as we're introduced to so many wonderful prophecies concerning the Messiah. And then finally next week we'll wrap up the book of Isaiah and we'll look at the gloriousness of God and the future kingdom. So the stuff about the millennium and the the second coming of Jesus Christ. We'll look at that all next week in the book of Isaiah. But tonight we're going to focus on the graciousness of God. And the reason the focus of this section is on the graciousness of God is because in this section we're prophetically introduced to Jesus, the suffering servant. In these 11 chapters, Isaiah paints a sevenfold picture of the Messiah. And for you note takers, that's the way we're going to look at the text tonight. Jesus, the ultimate servant, still 700 some years before he is born, God speaks of him prophetically and he paints him, as you can see on the list there, as the servant in the Gentile, the servant in the Lord, the servant in Israel, the servant in suffering, the servant in restoring, the servant in inviting, the servant in rebuking. And we'll look at those one at a time this evening, starting with this picture of Christ as the servant and his interaction with the Gentiles. Look at verse 1 of chapter 49 with me. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you people from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name, and he has made my name like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He has hidden me. He's made me a polished shaft in his quiver. He has hidden me. He said of me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified 
When I said I have labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing in vain, yet surely my reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from his womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so Israel is gathered to him, for I will be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the preserved ones of Israel. And then I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Oh, what God has done for you and I, most of us, unless you're a full-blood Jew tonight, if you are good for you. But for the rest of us, us Gentiles, oh, how good God has been to us. You realize the Gentile nations were afar off and only God's servant, Messiah, Jesus, could bring them near. And that work of bringing the Gentiles near, of course, began in eternity past. Isaiah 49, we're told, that Jesus was called from the womb. Isn't that what verse, not, verse 1 says? The Lord called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he's made mention of my name. You know, that, that really answers the question that sometimes people ask. When did Jesus know he was the Messiah of the world? When did he figure that out? Was he, you know, playing with his Tonka toys or whatever the equivalent was in the first century? And all of a sudden he's like, dar, dar. I'm God. Like, is that how it happened? Yeah, and people kind of debate that. Some, some say it was when he was 12. When, when, you know, the famous story that the one in the Gospel of Luke where he goes to Jerusalem with his, his mom and dad to celebrate the Passover there. And when they're on their way back, he was the age where he could travel with either party, the, the males or the females. And up to this point, you know, the children were supposed to stay with the, with the girls. But now he was old enough to be with the men and the, they would travel separately. And so no doubt Mary, she thought, oh, my boy's growing up. He's with his father, Joseph. And Joseph's there thinking, that little mama's boy still sticking with his mom. He's 12 years old. Isn't he supposed to be with the men? The problem was he wasn't with either of them. <laughs> and when they get back, they realize, oh, we, <laughs> we lost <laughs> Kevin. No, we lost, we lost Jesus. What's going on? And they go back and and when, they, and when they find Jesus teaching in the temple, he's 12, he's a junior higher. When he's teaching in the temple, he says to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Some people say that was it. That was the moment where he knew he was the Messiah. Some say, no, it wasn't. It wasn't until he was baptized when the spirit of God came upon him and he began his ministry. But, but I personally think it was even before that. It was before the baptism. It was before he was 12. It was even when he was formed there in Mary's womb. You see, when you really think about it, the same thing's true for you and I. We've been called to serve the Lord even before we were formed in our mother's womb. Jeremiah chapter one says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I sanctified you. That's, That's true of you, friends. Of course it was true of Jesus as he took on that body. He had a, a mission from the, from the time he was formed in Mary's womb. But it's true for you. You and I are called to be servants. And you and I have been set apart for the Lord really since before you were formed in your mother's womb. And I really believe that some of you feel like, you know, something's missing in my life. What is missing in my life? Could it be that you were created to serve him? 
and you've been trying to resist that in some way or another, friend, you need to surrender. Now, that doesn't mean you have to go on the mission field and we'll start getting updates for you and praying for you. Maybe that's what God's calling you to do. It doesn't mean you're supposed to be in the ministry and up here leading worship or teaching Bible studies. But it means you surrender your life and say, God, I just want you to do with me what you want to do with me. And some of you might think, well, what's God going to do with me? I don't have any gifts. I don't have any talents. I can't play worship. I can't teach. I'm not a good public speaker. Listen to this quote I came across from Robert Murray McShane, this great, great Scottish preacher. He said, it's not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy servant is an awful weapon in the hand of the Lord. See, you may not be a worship leader. You may not be a pastor teacher. But if you're one that says, Lord, I just want my life to be yours. I just want my life to be like Jesus. I just want purity and holiness to be developed in my life. Friend, I'm telling you, there is no end to what God can do with your life. God wants to use you. God loves you. How do you know? My life's pretty rough right now. Because of verse 16 in chapter 49. Would you look at verse 16? What what does it tell us? It tells us that I have inscribed you, speaking to us, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Listen up, Gentiles. How do we know God loves us? How do we know serving God is the most reasonable thing to do with our lives? We remember he loves us. He loves us so much, he inscribed us in the palms of his hands. Please remember that verse 16 was written 750 years before Christ died on the cross, not the foot of the cross. And this is just one of so many prophecies in this section that foretell of all that Jesus would do. I've ascribed you, inscribed you on the palms of our hands, how he loves us. And by the way, that that word inscribe, it means to cut into, it speaks of a permanence. Your name, his love, is permanently inscribed in Jesus' hands. It reminds me of that classic song by our friend Richard Semino. It says, when the heavens pass away, all your scars will still remain and forever they will say how much you love me. Forever, friends, we will be able to see the scars that are my scars, your scars, but not ascribed on you, inscribed onto him. No doubt we can say, forever my love, forever my heart, forever, Lord, my life is yours. Lead me, use me, do what you want, because you wrote your love on the palms of your hands. The servant and the Gentiles, secondly, note takers, we see the servant and the Lord. Look at chapter 50, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away? Of which of my creditors is it to whom, to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and your transgression your mother has been put away. Why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there none to answer? 
In my hand, is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. The fish stink because there is no water and they die of thirst. I clothe the heaven with blackness and I make sackcloth their coverings. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear is the learned. The Lord has opened up my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. This chapter continues on with the great things Jesus would do from Isaiah's perspective, has done from our perspective for you and me. In verse six, he says, I gave my back to those that struck me, to my cheek, to those who plucked out my beard. I didn't hide my face from shame and spitting. We read all that Jesus did and I so often wonder, how did he go through with all of it? How did he do that? I think chapter 50 has some indication. Four times in this chapter, God, Father God, is referred to as Yahweh Adonai. Yahweh Adonai. In in your English Bible, it's when it says Lord God. (laughs) Lord God. What what, what the Hebrew phrase is, 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 is Yahweh Adonai. Now you say, what's the importance of that? Well, language scholar Robert Girdlestone says that the name of God literally means, this name of God, Yahweh Adonai, literally means God is the owner of each member of the human family. And he consequently claims the unrestricted obedience of all. When I read Lord God, what God is saying to me is, I love you but I also own you. (laughs) I own you. I purchased you with my blood. You are mine. And what the Lord wants is obedience from you and I. I think we see this modeled in Jesus. That's how Jesus saw his father in heaven. Not where God's will was questionable. Not that God's will was negotiable. His father's will was Yahweh Adonai, Lord God, whatever do you want me to do? We see this in John 5. Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus in John 5 is speaking to the Pharisees and he's contrasting himself with them. He says, you guys just kind of do what you want. If if religiousness fits into your plan, great. If not, you do your own thing. Jesus says, I'm not like you at all. I of my own self do nothing. I listen and let God lead and let God direct. And friends, I don't think that was sanctified hyperbole. Jesus actually lived his life in complete submission to the Father, even to the death of of the cross. And I think he did it as an example to you and me. That's how we're to live. Lord, I'm going to see you as Yahweh Adonai, not someone who I negotiate with, not someone I follow as long as it suits me, but you are my God. You are my King. I am your servant. What are we going to do? Do you remember when Jesus was tempted? 
And he answered the temptation of the enemy this way. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do do you see what that verse says? Man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus didn't answer the temptation of Satan and saying, why would I ever follow you? I'm Jesus. I don't have to obey you. He said, man shall not live by every bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the Father. He's speaking to you and me. You want to have victory over the enemy? You want to live a life that is blessed in following the Lord? Guess what? You and me don't have to be God to defeat, in, to defeat our enemy. But we have to be a man or a woman who's filled with God, who's filled with his word, who submitted to his way, that's the way to victory, gang. You don't have to be a deity. You can be a human filled with his love and his word. Jesus gave us this model. He gave us an example in the temptation. And even Isaiah 50, I see how it was lived out on a daily basis, at least in my opinion. When it says in verse four, did you notice this? Again, this is prophetic of the Messiah. This is speaking to you of how the Messiah would live. It says there in verse four that I should know how to speak a word in season who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear. Some of you will say, well, how do we, you know, we we talk all the time in Calvary about read your Bible and pray every single day. Read your Bible and pray every single day. How do we know Jesus ever did that? Well, we know he got away all the time and prayed, certainly. That's all over the Gospels. How do I know that he meditated in the scriptures? One indication, right here in Isaiah. Isaiah, prophetically speaking of the Messiah, says what he's gonna do is morning by morning, he's gonna open his ear to his Father in heaven. You see, again, I think this is the Lord sharing with you and I some secrets to live a life that is victorious, that is blessed, that is effective for his kingdom. You and I need to see us as under Yahweh Adonai. He's not our buddy necessarily. He's the Lord God that you and I need to obey. I can have victory and obey him as I'm filled with his word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I walk in that practically by daily opening up my ear like Messiah did and letting him speak into my life. What an example Jesus is to you and me. Chapter 51, we see the servant in Israel. If you look at verse nine of chapter 51, look at verse nine, look at verse 17, Look at verse 17 of chapter 51. Look at chapter 52, verse 1. You'll see the phrase over and over, awake, awake. You see, again, historically, Israel is heading towards captivity in Babylon. They were going to be a weakened people, a decimated people. But in this chapter, God keeps reminding them, wake up, wake up, wake up. I'm going to punish you for your sins. But if you'll turn to me, I'm going to restore you again. And that would have been a tough thing for them to hear. What hope, they must have thought, does our nation have if we go into captivity? What hope does our nation have if another nation burns our city to the ground and takes us as their slaves and captives? But God reminds them, hey, Jews, you started very humble as a nation. 
In verse 2 of chapter 51, it says, Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah who bore you. I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. He wants to remind them, though it looks bleak ahead of them, their beginnings were kind of bleak. Don't forget, the Jewish nation began by a 99-year-old and a 90-year-old having a baby. That's pretty bleak odds that those, <laughs> those two are going to produce a nation. Can we just be honest with that? That's pretty bleak. I'm no longer worried about children when I'm 90. Like, that's just, that's pretty. But God says, look how you started, Israel. You started when I called these older folks. And I produced them a great nation. It must have seemed impossible. It seemed improbable. But God brings it up to this weakened nation heading into captivity. He brings them up to say, I can do that again. I can restore you from the depths of Babylon. And you that know your Bible history know that's exactly what God would do. 50,000 people return to the city of Jerusalem out of Babylon. And more than just return... It was in that rebuilt Jerusalem that Messiah was going to come. In other words, dark days were upon them, but there was light on the horizon because God was at work. And when I was reviewing for this, getting ready for this tonight, I just had a real sense that this is a word for someone here tonight. That you have trials all around you. You seem to be going into something that seems like an impossible situation. And I want you tonight to hear the word of the Lord. With men, everything's impossible. But your life is not in the hands of men. Your life, my life, our lives are in the hands of the Lord with whom all things are possible. He created, amen. He created a nation from a 90-year-old and a 99-year-old. He brought back a nation from absolute devastation in bondage to Babylon. And whatever you're up against tonight, oh, if you're leaning on you, you are in big trouble. No need to clap. But if you're leaning on him, you can take great hope tonight. Chapter 52 and 53, we see the servant and suffering. I want to read a good portion of this because most people believe, and I'm of those, that this is just the Mount Everest of Bible prophecy right here. Look in verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled to be very high, just as many as were astonished at you. His visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, and what he has been for what he has been for what had not been told. There we go. Then they shall see him, and what they had not heard, they shall consent. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness that we should see him. There's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. So he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely 
He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall, he, he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall be divided the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It is amazing to me that Isaiah 52, 53, Psalm 22, all written... Hundreds, 700 in this case, 700 years before Jesus was crucified. This passage was written even hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. So it wasn't like Isaiah wrote this thinking, you know what might happen to the Messiah? He might be crucified, so I'm going to write this just in case he is. How ridiculous. How ridiculous. This is not Isaiah guessing. This is God speaking in advance what he knew would happen to God the Son. That in verse 50, or chapter 52, 14, that his visage, his face, would be marred more than any man. I think it's good every once in a while for us to think on what Jesus did for you and me. That his beard was literally ripped out. That they put a bag over his head and began to hit him. You know, being hit is bad enough. But at least if you see someone taking a swing at you, you can kind of tense the muscles up a little bit and make, make the blow not as bad. With a bag over his head, the damage that would have been done to the bone structure of Jesus' face, unimaginable. So much so, it's written of him that they, they couldn't even recognize that he was a man after they beat him for you and for me. In chapter 53, verse 5, it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Let's never forget, precious men and women, it was for my sin and your sin he was crucified. It was for you and me that he went through all he did. It was my chastisement he was taking. I hope we never forget that. 
Verse 7, he was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. I've told you before that part of the Roman crucifixion is the first thing they would normally do to a man condemned to be crucified was they would whip him with this cat of nine tails. They would take the condemned man and they'd put his arms around a stone pillar so his back was completely exposed. And with this whip made up of little straps of leather and in that would have been bone and rock and anything they could, they could dig in. And as they'd whip, those things would attach to the back and then rip open the skin. And the reason, the reason the Romans did this is along with the Roman soldier who was doing the, the whipping, they would have a Roman scribe right next to the criminal. And the deal was this. If you confessed some crimes that you hadn't been caught for, well, the next lash wouldn't be as hard, and then you confess some more in the next one, and, you know, two or three lashes, you're off to die. You're going to die anyways. So it's not like hiding something's going to help you. But the also deal was if you were stubborn and you did not confess, well, the next lash would be harder. And the next one after that would be harder than the one before it. And what we are told about that moment with my Savior and yours is like a sheep before its shears is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. You see, Jesus had done nothing that he needed to confess, obviously. And he wasn't going to make anything up just to get out of pain. And so my Lord and yours was beat over and over and over and over and over and over and over again till he was so weak he couldn't even carry the crossbeam to the place of crucifixion. What he went through for me and for you. It says in verse 9, he made his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death. It's so interesting for you that know the gospel story. What happened? Jesus was crucified between two thieves and then he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. I know the English translation sounds like the exact opposite, but it's one of those things that are lost in translation. What the Hebrew is clearly saying is he died with the wicked and was buried with the rich. The New Living Translation actually does a really good job with this verse when it says he was killed like a criminal and he was put in a rich man's grave. It's amazing to me the exactness of God's word, again, written 750 years before this event actually took place. So much so that liberal scholars for years tried to say, oh, the latter part of Isaiah, the chapters we're studying, they must have been written after the cross. They're so exact in their detail. They're, they're so telling in their prophecy, even to how he would be buried and where he would die. They had to be written after the death of Jesus. And then just added, and we've lost. And that was taught in colleges until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Now we have in museums copies of the book of Isaiah that are a hundred years older than Jesus. And guess what? Isaiah 53 is in there. 
So there is no way, no way, no way this was written after the death of Jesus. This is God telling you and I the future in advance. How good it is to serve a God like that because, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone's turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Precious men and women, it is so important for us to see what the Lord has done for us, how good he has been to us because I believe, I believe with all of my heart the more you and I see this, the more we let it penetrate our hearts, the easier it becomes to walk in victory over sin. Listen, sin has a grip on each of us to one degree or another, doesn't it? Let's just be honest. Not me, you stinking liar. Sin, sin has a grip on us in one degree or another. I'm not saying you're out selling drugs, and, but to one degree or another, there's struggles, isn't there, in your heart? And the reason is, is because sin is pleasurable. Let's be honest. I mean, you know, thou shalt not stub your toe is not a commandment because I'm not tempted to stub my toe. That hurts. <laughs> I'll avoid that at all costs. But what I'm told to avoid, there's a little bit of a draw to some of those things, isn't there? course the book of hebrews tells us that sin is pleasurable for a season but that's just it right it's a season and then we know because we've all been there and done that then you have to pay the piper because the wages of sin is death death to what god is doing in our lives if not repented of death for eternity and it makes us understand that sin is bad at least intellectually but how do we deal with our sin our sin nature and the grip it has on our heart well When I was younger and had more time, I I used to love to read historical books. And in high school, I I read Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. It's a weird story, if you you have ever read it. (laughs) Weird Greek mythology kind of stuff. But there's, there's one story in there that I find so interesting in applying what we're learning tonight about Jesus and who he is. In Homer's Odyssey, that the hero is Ulysses and He's a traveler who wanted to experience all kinds of things. And one of the things he wanted to experience was the sound of the sirens. Now again, those of you who are not nerds like me, and so you've not read these books, the sirens were this island, fictional, obviously, (laughs) where these ladies would sing, and their, their voice was so beautiful that ships would be drawn into this island, but they'd all crash on the rocks. But the sailors wouldn't care because the sound of the sirens were so appealing, they would lose their lives just to hear the sound. And Ulysses, he wanted to hear it, but he also didn't want to die. So he came up with an ingenious plan. He had his men tie him to the mast of his ship. And he commanded that every one of them put wax in their ears and then go by the island of the sirens. And he said, no matter what I tell you, well, you can't hear me anyways because you got wax in your ears. Do not, do not turn in. Well, so the sailors all have wax in their ears and they go right by the island and, and Ulysses, as he hears the sound, it's so beautiful. He, he's screaming at his men, turn in, turn in, turn into the rocks. We've got to get closer. But they can't hear him because they've got wax in their ears. And so they sail by successfully and he hears the sound of the sirens. And it reminds me just a little bit of, of how we normally try to deal with our sin. I want to experience it. 
but I don't want the consequences. So I set up legalistic systems to try to get as close as I can to the cliff without, without falling over. I, I, I tried different things in my life to experience this without going, and it just, it just seems to be the work of the flesh. Well, later, Homer tells of a lot better way. He tells of a group of sailors who were blown off course, and they ended up off the coast of the island of the Sirens. And the Sirens began to sing. The sailors, even though they knew it would mean their death, they began to turn the ship toward the island. But there was a man aboard the ship by the name of Orpheus. And Orpheus was the greatest flute player in the entire world. And as he began to play his flute, the men's attention shifted from the sound of the Sirens to the sound of the flute. And they forgot about the island of the sirens and they survived because they found a sweeter song. That, men and women, is what I believe is so key to walking in victory. We can develop all of our legalistic systems and try to get to close to the edge as we can and more often than not, we'll fall right over, won't we? But if I can find a sweeter song, if I can find something that is more lovely than anything sin tries to throw in front of me, well, then my attention will shift from what the enemy wants to do in my heart to where my eyes need to be on Jesus. And friends, I don't know how you can read Isaiah 53 and the end of each gospel story and see the death of Christ and not realize that he is a sweeter song the love that he has for you and the love that he has for me and the greatness of it. Friends, it's gonna take a passion to get rid of another passion. And if you're passionate about sin and you're passionate about rebellion and you're passionate about going another way from the Lord, friends, it's time to get your eyes on Jesus. It's time to get your eyes on the sweeter song. Like the hymnist says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. You're struggling tonight. You determine this in your heart. Jesus, I just want to fall in love with you. I want to make it my purpose. So often I promise up and down, I'll never do that again. I'll never go there again. I'll never think that again. How about I just promise, Lord, tomorrow I want to fall in love with you. Tomorrow I want to discover more of you. Tomorrow I want to be passionate about you and I know what you'll find. You'll find that the song of the sirens, well, it's diminished by the song of the Savior. Because there's no one like Jesus, right? There's no one like Jesus. In chapter 54, we have the servant in restoring. We're almost done tonight. Chapter 54, it says, Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate 
And the children of the married woman, says the Lord, enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will expand to the right and to the left, and your, ter- your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth. Thank you, Jesus. And you will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore, for your maker is your husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth, for the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken, grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says the Lord. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Amen. 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 The imagery of chapter 54 is Jehovah, the faithful husband, forgiving Israel, the unfaithful wife, and restoring her to her place of blessing. It's the constant theme of the scriptures that Israel, the wife of Jehovah, and Israel has committed all types of spiritual adultery by participating in all types of immorality. And God did not consider it no big thing. There were going to be consequences because of their sin. The Babylonian captivity was right around the corner, as we'll see when we get to Jeremiah next. But the point of Isaiah 54 is that God still loved them. And he was going to restore them. He was going to restore them in such a way that the failings of their past would be completely forgiven and forgotten. God loves not just to forgive, but to restore. And for you this evening, who have committed your own spiritual adultery. You know what God's will is for you, but you've willingly turned your back on him and done your own thing. Listen, there will be consequences. There will be repercussions because of sin. It's why God tells us to run from it from the first place. But the enemy will say to you, but you're finished. The enemy will say to you, God's done with you. But would you look at the word of the Lord? Would you look at verse four? Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth, and you will not remember the reproaches of your widowhood anymore. Oh, friends, our sin is great, but the graciousness of our God is greater. Do you realize this, sinners? Do you realize you are forgiven and more than just forgiven, God wants to restore you. So turn to him. Turn to him. What are you doing far from him? Turn to him. In 55 and 56, we see the servant inviting. It's a threefold invitation to the Gentiles to come, to seek, to worship. To come, he says there. Come, it's an invitation extended to everyone, not just the Jews, anyone who's thirsty for that which really satisfies. You come to him, you seek him. What does that entail? Getting his heart, getting his mind because his ways are not your ways and his thoughts, not your thoughts, as it says in the verse eight of chapter 55. 
How do I get his heart and his mind? Again, I go to the word, the word that will accomplish what God breathed into existence. Verse 11, so my word shall go forth like my mouth. It shall not return void. It shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing what I sent it. I need to come to him. I need to seek him. I need to worship him. Verse 12, for you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace and the mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. I know in a study's past, I've quoted J.P. Moreland, a great Bible thinker and scholar, and he says it's high time that we stop believing in Christ just because it feels good and because it works. We need to believe in Christ because it's true. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. Christianity is not just some emotional, feel-good experience. It's true. However, that said, it also works. If you apply the principles of the Lord in your life that you find in the word, you will not be able to do anything but clap your hands and praise the Lord because it works. It works. Praise the Lord. It works. It works. Finally tonight, the servants and rebuking in contrast to what I just said about Christianity, that it works. Apply the principles of scripture and you will see. Well, unfortunately, the opposite is also true. If you ignore the Lord, if you ignore his word, well, you'll find out why God said what he said in the first place. And in chapters 57, 58, 59, we see six groups of people who don't apply the word. I'll just list them, leave it to you to read on your own. The leaders of Israel, they were doing their own thing and they were leading their nation right into bondage. The idolaters in chapter 57, 3 to 13, they were the source of the judgment, worshiping another God other than the Lord, the proud. There were those who would say, God will never judge us. God will never deal with our sin. We're too important. Oh, I hope that's not your heart. God will never judge me of my sin. I'm too important. <laughs> oh, precious one. The greedy, the greedy were being judged because they were not sharing what God had given them and not sharing their lives. The hypocrites in chapter 58 and those responsible for injustice in 59, each of them were guilty of knowing what to do and doing the opposite. And my prayer for each of us tonight is we would not be in that group. The Lord is gracious. He's always able to restore. But wise is the man and wise is the woman that understands sin stinks. Its effects stink up our lives. And the best thing you and I can do is say, Lord, you are Yahweh Adonai, Lord God. Not my advisor, (laughs) not my rich uncle that I come to when I'm out of money. You're Yahweh Adonai. And I'm your servant. So let's go forward in this. And I want to get my directions from your spirit and your word. And I want to spend my time seeking you, drawing close to you. If I do sin, I want to be quick to repent and realize that you, Lord, are a sweeter song, so worthy of my adoration and attention. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word for us tonight. And even as we kind of fly as a bird's eye view of chapters 49 to 59. Lord, I think we got the point tonight. There's no one like you, Jesus. And what you did in our lives purchased such grace for every single one of us.
But I fear so often we can hear about grace, we can hear about the cross. But it's not just enough to hear it, Lord. We need to believe that you are the only way that we're getting to heaven. We need to believe that you, Lord, are the only answer for our dark hearts. And we need to cast ourselves upon you, knowing that as we grow in you and love you and walk with you, Lord, slowly, surely, you're going to shape us into your image. And Lord, there's no place I'd rather be than just in your presence. There's no one's image I would rather have burned into my heart. For truly tonight, as we saw you, Lord, you are the sweeter song. Help us to turn to you in times of temptation. To turn to you when the enemy starts to whisper in our ears. Lord, truly, may we turn our eyes upon you. And look full in your wonderful face. And watch the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. Because you are glorious. And you are grace. And we're so blessed to be yours.